All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, it looks like all the elections are pretty much over. We still got some more things going on in Alaska. Maybe a couple things happen in a couple other states and obviously we have the runoff in Georgia, but here's the reason why you should listen to this episode today. It's because rather than going through and rehashing everything that everyone's already talked about, we're going to talk specifically on the issues that Republicans should have done a much better job messaging on. And I don't mean just talking about or blaming Biden. I mean, what was their solution? So we're going to go through about seven of the top issues, and we're going to offer real solutions that candidates can use in the future, and I certainly hope will use in the future. All of that coming up on this episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. We appreciate your time and spending this hour with us. I hope that you will go to the description, the link in the description of this episode. Join us on Volley. We will definitely be looking to our audience on Volley for episodes in the future. So if you have any ideas on episodes you would like to see us do, let us know there, and we look forward to meeting you there. All right, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a pretty good person. With us, my beautiful bride, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everyone. Then we have our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. Can we please stop calling no. that political prognosticator? No, not until we get the puppy to replace you. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I really don't like central banking. And that's good because that will be one of the topics that we bring up today. But first things first, if you have been listening to any podcasts or watching any media for the last few days, here's what you've come into contact with. 247 different people that all know exactly why we lost and what we need to do in the future. And I I'm here to tell you they're all wrong, kind of. And we know the solution, right? We know the solution. They're all wrong, kind of. And they're all right, kind of, because that's the problem, right? Everybody has wanted to come forward and say, oh, you know why we lost? It was Trump. No, no, no. I know why we lost. It was Mitch McConnell. No, no, no. I know why we lost. It was because of funding sources. No, no, no. I know why we lost. It was because we didn't have good candidate quality. Or I know why we lost. It was all voter fraud. That explains everything. Okay. Let's just, can we just be intellectually honest and consistent here for a while? Okay. You, you can certainly point to different elections at different points in the country, parts of the country. You can look at different individual statements or activities or expenditures, and you can say that should have been done better. But if you think any one of those things by themselves explains what happened during the midterms, I'm sorry, that is bias confirmation. That is, I went into this and I already, had an, I already had an idea of who I don't like and who I do like within the Republican Party, and now I'm going to figure out a way to make the people I don't like entirely responsible for what happened, 
right? And and we would have seen the same thing if everything had been successful. It would have been like, oh yeah, this explains exactly why everything was right. Look, there there are individual things that you can look at and say, yeah, I think uh, I think Mitch McConnell should have spent more money on the Nevada Senate race, or you know what? I don't think it was a good idea for Donald Trump to start trashing Ron DeSantis two days before the midterms, um, or you know what? In, in this particular race in, in Pennsylvania, you know, gosh, if only we would have had a better candidate um, win the primary. Okay, great. You can do all of that. And again, some of that will explain things. You can even look at, you know what? I don't like the fact that it takes four extra days to count ballots in Arizona. Meanwhile, Florida's got all the results in for us that night. And Florida's got like two or three times the population of Arizona. Right. Like we can look at all of these things and, and there's work to be done. All of them. Like I, I've carried election integrity bills. Yeah. Like I, I recognize that election integrity is important. I, I recognize that a lot of Republicans especially are frustrated by the fact that it, it seems like a lot of times we go into election day ahead and then four days of accounting, we lose, right? That's fresh. Now that doesn't always happen. We had, a, we had a case in Arizona where the Republican went into election day losing and then four days later was ahead once they started counting the remainder of the ballots. But that doesn't mean there aren't things we need to fix within our electoral process to restore some of the confidence that people should have in it. But I am going to say this before we move into the next portion here. If you honestly believe, right? Like th these two things don't make a lot of sense to me. The Democrats, or we'll just say progressives, progressives in general tend to dominate the media. Yeah. Right now, obviously, you have Fox News, you have alternative media, but if you look at the networks, if you look at CNN, MSNBC, it is dominated by progressives. And social media. Right? And, and social media, right? Dominated by progressives. If you look at academia, dominated by progressives. If you look at Hollywood, dominated by progressives. So what you're telling me is that your younger voters or, or whoever it could be, voters in general, are inundated in almost every cultural institution that they're associated with, whether it be academia, whether it be the media, whether it be arts and entertainment, they're inundated with a progressive narrative. But the only thing that explains election losses are it was stolen. I, look, it, could it be that it was stolen in certain... Yeah, that's a possibility. I want to see evidence, but that's a possibility. Sure. But here's what I'm not going to accept. I'm not going to accept that you can simultaneously believe that the progressive movement can control the most dominant influencing components of culture, but they, they can't figure out how to win an election fair and square. Right. No, the, the, pro the bigger problem here is they have figured out how to win elections. Yeah. They have figured out. They, they do it by dominating cultural institutions, which are critical to molding the thoughts yes. of voters. Yeah. So does, does any of this mean, just so we're very clear, does any of this mean that election integrity or voting laws don't matter? No, they absolutely matter. And there's a lot that needed to be fixed, especially after some of the garbage stuff that took place during COVID. But if you if you think that if we fixed all that tomorrow, then we'd win all the time, we'd never lose, you're not paying attention. And, and what it is, is uh, there are some people out there, not every, but there's some people out there, they want an easy out. They want an excuse. Well, if we just fix the voting laws, then we'd win all the time. No, we want it. No, we want it. Because it's ridiculous to assume that you can see that much control over critical cultural institutions and still win elections, right? So that kind of leads us into the main body of what we're going to talk about today. And that is, okay, so what, what do our responses need to be on these core issues? So Hamilton's got a list for us. Hamilton, yep. what's the first one you want us to tackle? The first one is inflation. Okay. 
So Christian, we, we talked about this where inflation was one of the top issues before voters. Yeah. And if you looked at the polling, the voters not only listed inflation as one of the top issues, but they also said that Republicans are focused on inflation. But then we started talking about like, okay, but they are focused on it, but the Republican message seemed to be inflation's bad. <laughs> like, well, oh, I think, well, that's brilliant. <laughs> I think part of the problem is that Republicans didn't really, the only people that were behind the curve on understanding inflation more so than the Federal Reserve itself were politicians. Yeah. I, I, I really think that it wasn't until way into the election cycle that politicians started realizing, oh, voters actually care about this thing that hasn't been an issue since the 1980s. Yeah. We have no understanding of how to talk about this, in large part because, quite frankly, most people running for office don't have any sort of conception of modern monetary theory or the consequences of it or what quantitative easing is, or what zero interest rate percentage, you know. Per, Our per, listeners of making the argument do understand. That. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like, like you know, things like ZIRP and QE and MMT, like these acronyms. Yeah. I'd be willing to bet if you got every single member of Congress in a room and you asked them if they could name what one of those acronyms mean. Yeah. I think you could maybe on one hand count the number of people that would be able to <laughs> Thomas answer Massey, even one of them. Rand Paul. Well, and I, I think this is what it comes down to is that one, we needed to do a better job of explaining it, right? Because Democrats also got away with claim, well, this is a global phenomenon. Okay, it's not a virus, right? It's not like one day we woke up and like, oh my gosh, we've all caught the inflation yeah, sickness. Yeah, yeah. Rats from trade ships. Have it's caught, because central inflation. banks. Everywhere in the world all tried the exact yeah. same policy. So, of course, it's going to be a global fund. I love when, when Democrats go out there or just progressives in general go out there and say, like, you know, we need to change the subject from inflation because it's not just in the U.S. It's happening out elsewhere. Yeah. So you're telling me that other countries tried the exact same policy and it failed there, it too? Miserably. So here's, so here's, the, here's the point. First, you, you need it when we're talking about something like inflation, right? This is not talking about like healthcare, where people generally understand, okay, this is what healthcare is. When we're talking about inflation, everyone kind of has this conception, okay, it's rising prices, but rising prices, why? And and that's that's really important because what inflation is at the end of the day is inflation is the government has been printing money. Right. And so they, they've thrown a bunch of money into the economy. That money's not backed by anything other than the government saying, here's the money, right? And then the end result is, is that if you have, like if, if we were to take apples, right? If there was one apple left in the world, that apple would be worth millions. Yeah. Millions, right? However, if there's 40 trillion apples in the world, it, is it worth as much as one apple in the world? No, it's worth less. Okay, same thing kind of applies to currency. If I have $1 left in the world, right, and it has some sort of inherent or intrinsic value, that's really that's really valuable. If all of a sudden I print off trillions of them within a very, very short period of time, the value of that individual dollar is going to drop. Sure. So the question, you have to ask two questions here. One question is, okay, well then who has the ability to who has the ability to print all this money off? Ah, excellent question. That would be the Federal Reserve working in concert with the Treasury, right? So that's your that's your first issue that you got to address. And the second one is what motivates, because this is really important. If we know inflation is bad, what could possibly motivate anyone to engage in inflation? Government spending. But Nick, I think we're at a disadvantage on this topic because the left, I think, got away with blaming this issue of rising prices on corporations. Yeah. And the people in America believed that who didn't understand these 
monetary policies that we've been discussing. So how do we combat that narrative? I, I think you have to. So first of all, corporations always want to make as, as much money as they possibly can. Guess who also does? Laborers. Guess who also does? Everybody, right? Like this whole idea that one day corporations just woke up and said, hey, we should be super greedy right now. Like that, that's not a thing. They always want to make the most, just like their employees always want to make the most. The question is, is what changed about the conditions right. that, that have this upward pressure on prices? Well, I got news for you. ExxonMobil wanted to make as much on a, on a barrel of oil or on their gas in, in 2019 that they did in 2020 that they did in 2021. So this whole like, oh, it's corporate greed, that explains it. If, if corporate greed explains it, well, then why didn't it explain it two years ago or three years ago or four years ago? What's different now? Well, they also blame COVID. Yeah. Well, well, you got the shutdowns and then your supply goes down. And then so so I think the left also was really, really good at blaming COVID for supply chain right. issues yeah. and blaming inflation and high prices it. on that. And, and so it was just basically like hide the ball, like just... It okay. becomes a wash because then suddenly it's not just monetary policy yeah. or fiscal policy, for that matter, with stimulus checks that results in inflation. It's also on the supply. I mean, the best lies are lies that actually have a kernel of truth. Absolutely. And there has to be a certain degree of superficial plausibility. It is. It's not just superficially plausible. It's, it is actually true that a a portion of the inflation crisis that we're in right now is on the supply side. That's that's objectively true. Yeah. But I think that, that to push back a little bit on what you were saying earlier, Hamilton, sure. I don't actually think the reason that we lost on messaging when it comes to the number one issue that, that you know, pollsters were showing us that people were voting on this year w being inflation. I don't think we lost on that because the left was able to, to dupe American voters into blaming corporations. I think that the only people that believe that are progressive activists. Okay. I, I, I think that, 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 that we're going to pretty much lean Democrat anyway. It, not just progressive activists, but I think those were the ones that were pushing I, the narrative I think the most. For, here's what I think was really the reason that we lost on this front. It's not that we lost so much as we didn't win. Yeah. When you look at the exit polling, it showed that people overwhelmingly said that, you know, inflation is their number one issue. But they were not sold on the idea that voting Republican was going to solve inflation. That's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. That's not to say that they were blaming the wrong, you know, sources for inflation. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of people that they didn't really care if it was the federal government or corporations or any yeah. any or, or on the supply side or the demand side or anything in between that was causing the inflation. I think that at the end of the day, the average voter was going to the voting booth saying gas is up, groceries are up, my rent is up, everything's expensive, but I don't necessarily think that either party has laid out any sort of plan to solve this. I think this. you're right. Well, and and so when it when that's the case, and I'll end with this, when that's the case, when it becomes a wash, it doesn't matter if that's the number one issue, and it doesn't matter if Republicans are harping on it a whole yeah. lot, as we did. Yeah. If we can't sell the a solution to somebody, it doesn't matter if that's the number one I, issue. They have no motivation to vote for us. I, I think, agree with I that. I think one of the reasons why they didn't sell a solution to people is because in all honesty, the solution to inflation hurts. Yeah. It's going to hurt before it gets better. And Republicans have a hard time when they're trying to get elected um, making a case for something that's going to hurt. Yeah. And on top of that, 
Republicans, because I mean, any politician, because they're so focused on reelection or they're so focused on election um, or using inflation to their advantage. Right. They they don't have an incentive to fix the problem once they get in because they're looking to their next election. And if the solution is going to hurt then it could hurt their election. And And we see this all the time, like in in the state legislature and on the federal level, where they know that the initial product of the solution or the initial like... uh, The medicine. what Yeah, the medicine's (laughs) going to make you sick, but it will kill the cancer. Well, if all we're focused on is the sick, uh, being sick and how long it's going to take to get rid of this this problem... um, People don't like feeling bad. They don't like yeah. the the result of the pain that it takes to fix the problem. And so it it jeopardizes reelections. We see this on the state level too, where they know what the right thing is to do, but election season's coming. Well, yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you this too. This is also something that people don't like to talk about. And this, this comes down to voter responsibility, right? It, it's, there, there's a reason why when Thomas Sowell said, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why, um, Liars make such fantastic mm-hmm. politicians is because when the voters expect government to do things it can't possibly do, only liars can satisfy. Mm-hmm. So, so part of this has to do with proper diagnosis of the problem. It's not good enough to say everything's going up at the grocery store. Aren't you mad? Vote for me. Like, oh yeah, I am mad. That is true. But okay, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, aren't you mad? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? Jews, I'm mad too. Like, wait a second. No, I want to know. Why, okay, why is it going up? That's the first thing I want to explain to me. Yeah. And I don't want it with a bunch of like acronyms. I want you to just explain why it's going up. But they don't and, want to explain that wanna, because then people will be able to identify when they themselves yes, do the same using thing. It. And that's the big, pro- right. that is the yeah. big problem with the issue of inflation is Republicans have been guilty as well. Yes. In fact, mm-hmm. in some cases, they've been just as, if not more guilty. And, and that's, that's the problem. You have to own that and you have to say, this is what was, this is the problem. The Fed is printing too much money. Why is the Fed printing this money? Well, because politicians want to spend money, but they don't want to tell you they're going to raise your taxes and they can't continue to just borrow it without end. And so if they just print more, they get the money first, then they spend it at yep. full value. And by the time the money trickles down to you, you want to talk about trickle down economics, inflationary monetary policies, trickle down, right? So explain it in a way that actually makes sense with the respect to the process. And then you say, there's only two ways to end it. You have to come up with a process where the Fed cannot just print money like this. And two, you have to kick out the people that are constantly trying to spend this money without telling you what it exactly, where exactly it's coming but from. But they can always make a case for what why it's okay to do it this time. So to, Christian, to wrap us out on this inflation topic, what should the conservatives plan have been going into this election cycle? Well, I certainly don't think it should have just been to complain about it. I mean, it's important to, to, you know, show voters that you care about the issue, but you also need to provide some solutions to it. And I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I can't think of a single Republican candidate for Congress this year that talked about inflation with any sort of solution in mind. No, I, I think that's accurate. And like you've said before, I mean, we, Audit the Fed became kind of this like libertarian thing mm-hmm. like Ron Paul, Rand Paul and whatnot. But really all auditing the Fed means is we're actually going to go look at the practices of the Federal Reserve and determine whether or not it's contributing to the monetary problems that we're having. And, and so really it's instead of instead of letting everybody to include some Republicans try to classify this as some sort of ridiculous notion, it's like, no, this institution has an incredible amount of power over the money of the United States 
And we want to know how they're doing business. Like there, there's nothing unreasonable about that. And if you talk about it that way, I think most people would say, yeah, that is, I do want to know what's going on in there. And I want to know why these people are telling me I can't know. Yeah. And it's not just that. I'll also end with this. The other two things that I think should have been on the table that weren't, there, there's no campaign that did this was we should have outlined a plan to ban debt monetization and ban quantitative easing. Yeah. Literally outlaw the Federal Reserve from being able to engage in those two things. Which means you can't print money to pay off government debt. And you can't print money in order to pump up the stock market. Yeah. yeah. I, because those two things are the reason, as Milton yeah. Friedman pointed out, inflation is always has been and always will be an exclusively monetary phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And when you when you identify the solution of of or, or, or sorry the source of where those problems came from it came from those two things but so many republicans didn't understand the cause of inflation sure i mean, i really think that that that's the problem here is that so many republicans didn't understand what was the cause of the problem when, and when, so, they, when, when you misdiagnose the problem you're going to come up yeah, with yeah so, so so at that point the, the easy path is just simply complain about it but not actually offer any sort of solution and that's why voters went into the voting booth not being sold on the idea that if I vote Republican, this is going to get any better because to their credit, there's a lot of Republicans that they didn't have any plan to make the yeah, problem I, better. I, I think you're exactly right, Christian. We la- we did not sell them on the fact that we had a plan, but moving on to our number two point, it seems like we also did not sell them on having a larger economic plan. Would well, you agree with that, Nick? Yeah. I think the two go hand in hand, don't they? They ab- Yeah, they abs- they're, they're connected, but they're still separate. How, tell us how they're separate. So Nick. one is more monetary and to some degree fiscal. The other is fiscal and regulatory um, and, and, and a part of tax, um, okay. tax policy as well. So uh, here's one of the good news for anybody that's listening to this right now, because sometimes it seems overwhelming on, do I got to memorize, like, what's MMT, what's QE, what's, you know, what, do I got to memorize all these things? Do I got to go through and read economic studies all the time? Um, no, you don't. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of this. What you really need to do, understand is basic principles. Like Ludwig von Mises wrote a whole book called Human Action. And it was all about economic theory. And what he was saying is, is that, you know, it's really nice when people come up with all of these different like math equations to try to explain the economy. But ultimately what we're studying is human action. How do humans respond to different incentives and disincentives? So don't be intimidated by all these people that say, oh, well, what we really need to do is have the government invest more. The government doesn't invest. What the government does is take your money and then redistribute it based off of government priorities. You invest. And the way you invest is you invest with your money based off of your desire to be able to improve your situation or maybe help somebody else out at the same time. So when we talk about economic policy, what we need to remember is that this is largely about incentive structures, but it's also about understanding that people spend their money far more effectively than other people spend their money for them, right? That That is just kind of a basic truth about the economy. And so when, when you break it down that way, then we can tell, then we can explain to people like the reason why we need less taxes is because even though that politician is telling you that if I will spend money to give it to you, they had to take it from somewhere, right? And even if they're saying, well, I'm not going to take it from you. I'm going to take it from this person over here. But if your goal is to rise up to the economic level that this person's at, yeah, yeah, eventually you're the target of their policy if they're convincing you that, well, the bad guys are the ones that have stuff. And they never ask the question, well, how did they get the stuff? Oh, well, they got the stuff by being hyperproductive, right? They got mm-hmm. the stuff by providing goods and services within the economy. So the, the two things that we need to look at with all of our economic policy is how do we allow people to keep more of their own money? That's tax related. And then how do we make it easier for people to go out and make money? 
that's largely regulatory related, although the taxes also factor in as well. Because if, if the more you make and the more productive, let, let's put it this way, if the more productive you are, right, if that's what equals whether or not you, you get more money or you make more money, the more productive you are, if I disincentivize your productivity by constantly regulating you, or I disincentivize your productivity by constantly taxing you more, well, then at some point you're like, well, it doesn't pay to be productive yeah. or, or it doesn't pay what I need it to pay in order to motivate me to do it. Now, by the same token, if you're saying, hey, if you do nothing, we'll give you money. If you do nothing, right, we'll, we'll, we'll provide more products and services for you. Well, then I have a positive incentive to do nothing. And the, the thing that we need to understand about that whole dynamic is, is that we have a whole class of politicians that is heavily dependent on keeping people dependent. Right. It, it is a it is a symbiosis, symbiotic to, relationship to that point, Nick. How effective do you think uh, Biden's student loan forgiveness plan was in winning the votes of younger people? Very. I, I think by, I mean, anybody that was looking at this from a legal perspective knew that he did not have the authority to do this. He did not have the authority because it was through an executive order. Yes. Right? The, the, the president cannot come in. So the, the le legislation is, is what was used in order to create this whole loan system. Right. And then the executive branch is responsible for exercising it. Now, if, if I give you authority as like my attorney or whatnot to execute certain things, but within parameters, you have to follow those parameters. You can't just say, well, it's my job to run this. So I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. You can't do that. What right. Does that as, mean? as SBF is learning right now. But what does that mean for the people who already input their information and they already like got situated with this debt forgiveness stuff? Because there are some there are. It, correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't there people who already realized a debt forgiveness? I don't to know. This? I don't like know. Like it already started. I, I no, so. no money has actually been paid out. No, no loans have actually been forgiven yet. The administration was simply collecting that information. Yeah. Okay. They were going to start doing it. I think at some point next year. And now the courts have blocked it twice now. I believe. And yeah. so and it can't go. It cannot go through the way he's the way he promised. But it worked great for yes. um, election year. Yeah. And so basically, he lied to you. Yes. Wow. He knew. Yeah. Well, and, and that's well, why when, whether whether he knew he was lying or not, I'm not sure he even knows where he is yeah, half the I'm, time. Again, the, the the sentience of Joe Biden has been grossly exaggerated. But the the thing that we look at with economic policy is again the the larger argument that we need to make is the goal should be to lower taxes only to the to lower taxes as much as possible to where we're only funding essential functions of government. And then on the regulatory side, you, you lower regulations as much as possible in order to incentivize people to actually go out and be productive and start businesses and invent things and everything else. Now, the question is, is how do you talk about those things? Well, it, to some degree, it depends on where you're at, right? If you're running on the federal side, I mean, you can, you can actually talk about this in, in you know, broad strokes. If you're running at this on the state side, like, so for instance, in Virginia, I, I want to get, there's a lot of taxes I want to get rid of. I realize you can't get rid of all of them at once. So what am I going to focus on? I'm going to focus on personal property tax because everyone has to pay it and everyone hates it. It, it is, it is, it is collected in a way that doesn't make any sense. Primarily you get a huge bill at the end of the year, right before Christmas on what? On things you've already bought and paid taxes on. And now you have to pay an additional tax on them, right? So it, it's things like that where you can, you can explain something uh, to a voter that they understand that they have a personal connection with. And you could say, look, we're going to get rid of this. Now, the other side of the question will be, well, okay, well, what's going to happen with that revenue? Well, there's two good, I'm glad you asked. There's two things. One, the locality already has mechanisms to be able to raise revenue for what they need to do. Two, 
oh my gosh, the government might not get to spend as much money. Yeah. Because God knows the rest of us either are not having as much money to spend or the value of our dollar is not going as far. And we have to make cuts in our own life. If you're honestly telling me that the politician, that the government is the one entity that gets to walk in and say, you know what? No matter how bad we screw this up, you're not messing with our budget. Oh, I would love for them to run yeah. on that. My opinion is that the way we went on the student loan issue, because we're about to move into education as our next topic, is to talk less about forgiveness uh, of student loans and talk more about how the value of college is decreasing. Mm -hmm. Because if you can encourage more people to go a different direction into trade schools yeah. or full-time work, well, people are going to learn the value of their work very quickly in that situation. Because it's very hard to convince someone who you, uh, that they shouldn't take advantage of something that they've already been told is free. Yeah. But if you can tell them it's a waste of their time. Well, well I, I think that, it, well, and again, we want to be careful. Is about there this. a legislative avenue here where you can say no government loans for anything that will not produce results? I, I think what we need to recognize is that a lot of people are getting talked into these college loans, either you know in, in their late teens or very early 20s, with, without a good understanding of, of the implications. Um, there, there's two groups. The, the two groups right now that benefit the most from the current college loan scheme are politicians and universities, mm -hmm. right? The, the idea is, is this is for the kids. No, it isn't. The kids got to pay it back. What I love the most about this is that these kids would be rejected for a $100,000 mortgage for a house, you know, something that's an actual asset. asset. Um, but oh yeah, we'll give you a hundred thousand yeah. dollars worth of student loan debt that you can't discharge. Yeah. And, and, I like uh, that is is honestly taking advantage of some of these kids, quite frankly. And I and I think that's the way. Again, how do we die? So let's start with diagnosing the problem. Okay, the the problem is is that when you get that college loan, that's not being loaned out to you by somebody that lended it to you, mm -hmm. um, based off of their own money. That's a politician that is handing out other people's money. So right off the bat, there's a moral there's a moral problem there with the way that that's being distributed. The second thing is. Okay, look at the incentives. What have we done? Well, the politician has every incentive to give you as many college loans as possible yeah. because they've told you that going to the college is a good thing. And oh, by the way, they're sending you to a college where 95, 90 to 95% of the faculty is, is progressive. Yeah. Right? So there, there's this perverse incentive on, on multiple grants. And then the colleges love it too because they've basically got a guaranteed source of income. Mm -hmm. And then the colleges are out there saying, oh my gosh, yeah, you should forgive this student loan debt. Now, what if government looked back in the college and said, okay, we're going to forgive it and we're going to take it out of your budget. We're going to take it out of any money that was allocated for your university. You created this, you helped create this mess. You advocated for the federal loans. You advocate, you, you created your, your, infrastructure, your educational infrastructure around those loans. And then you created a whole bunch of degrees that apparently were so worthless in the economy that people could not pay back the loans. Yeah. And now you're demanding that the person that made a different decision pay the loan? No, no, no. You're going to pay it. I think most people, I think most people would look at that and be like, you know what? Yeah. A university sitting on top of a multi-billion dollar endowment. I, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't buy that they need more of my money to yeah. bail out these students when they helped put them in this situation in the first place. So diagnose the problem. And then offer the solution. And the solution is not the government should be handling more of these loans. On that point, Nick, let's go ahead and move to education as a whole. Talking about all years of education. Yeah. What should the conservative strategy be going forward on the topic of education? And how did we not do a good job messaging this 
in this past election cycle. So to some degree, we actually did. Okay. Uh, and you see that within the school board races. So that when, when a voter showed up to vote specifically on the topic of education, which school board is about as close as you get to yeah. someone voting on a single issue, um, most school boards went heavily to the right. Because parents were very upset with what's was going on. Was this across the country or yes. very localized? We, no, we saw that. In, we saw this oh, in places all over the country. Republicans picked up school board seats. Uh, even in play, By the way, this is something that, that I think kind of refutes the idea that the only reason that we lost every single one of these high-level races for, like, governor or senator yeah. is because of voter fraud is when you look down ballot, like, conservatives— in, in in states like Arizona, where we lost the governorship in the Senate, like conservatives picked up, yeah. you know, seats in school board elections. Same thing in Nevada. Say, it, like, like there, there's like, so I think many we picked up House seats in Arizona too, didn't we? Um, we maybe, yeah. I think that I think that we did actually pick up a House seat in Arizona. But like my my point is, is that when you get down to some of these House elections and especially these local elections for things like school board, like you're going to be hard pressed to find instances where conservative candidates lost yeah and i that kind of just seems interesting because like if you're gonna rig the ballot why would you forget to rig the local <laughs> election that's gonna mm. you know dictate well, your education and, and policy think, for the next generation of of students when I, well the important thing to understand though and this is something that uh, a lot of voters don't understand is they think oh i changed out my school board that's going to fix it no, it's probably not because a lot of the policy that your school board is following is decided at the state level and then the federal funding, which represents probably about 10% of your school's budget, is, is at the federal level. So no, your, your state legislators have a lot to do. So your state legislators have a lot more to do with what happens on education policy than the federal, than your congressman. That's just, that's just a reality. So the, the two things that I think we need to focus on within education, so one is on the whole college loan issue, is that, again, we need to properly diagnose the problem so people understand this is not us trying to pick on a student. That, that has a bunch of college loans and is, it doesn't know what they're going to do right now because yes. they were told this was the way to, to be prosperous within society. I went and I got my degree. And they weren't always told, well, it, hey, what degree you get actually matters. And, and more and more what they're finding out is that, oh, even if I do have a degree and even if I have a degree in, in, a, in a fairly lucrative industry, if the industry is overrun with degrees, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm competitive unless I bring something else to the table. And so part of the conversation that we need to adjust within education is one side is telling you, you just need a degree. Here's a bunch of money. Go get it. We need to be the ones saying, no, <laughs> we want to make you formidable within the economy. Yes. We want to make you capable within the economy. And if that means going to college, then go to college. I, I had this discussion with a bunch of higher ed representatives. I will say the biggest problem that I have with your institutions right now is that you are so focused on this idea of the degree. What I want to know is each individual class you make me take to get that degree, how does it make me better? How does it make me more formidable? How does it make me more competent? How does it make me more capable? How does earner? it do that? I wish we could restructure the entire way they do higher education because there are a huge number of classes mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with your career of choice. They have nothing to do with whether you can process wow. the information or or anything for your career of choice. And now, you know, you. but you've got to take this. And I, I feel like... 
they're in the business of keeping college professors employed. Well, I, I think what, no, I think no one would take their class if it had no value. Yeah. I, and I think that's what we need to go back is that we, what our solution should be, we want to focus on what the value of education is. It goes up to your mm-hmm. point, right? Everyone's talking about the cost of education, a, a crappy education, whether it's expensive or cheap is still a crappy education. Yes. The real focus should be is how does every dollar you spend, how does every class you go to, how does every certification you get, how does it make you more formidable as a as a person, as an employer, as an employee, as a citizen, what value does it bring? But that's not, that is not the goal of higher education anymore. The higher education goal is an experience. Well, and, and again, so the question is, how do we diagnose the problem? Yeah. And what are the solutions we offer? The, so, the prob- so how do we fix The problem that? is, is that we have perverse incentives within a government run structure, whether that's K through 12, where the government is now administrating the schools or whether it's higher ed, where it's largely dependent on these federal loans. So that, that's the problem, perverse incentive structure within our education system. What's the solution? You have to be able to open it up to more options and choices. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, what Republicans or what conservatives or what libertarians are arguing for is not, hey, you did a bad gen- job of running education, now let us run it. What we're really actually advocating for is we want to put the power back in the hands of the people that are closest to this issue, and that's the parents. And so if, if we have a situation now where dollars are following students, well, then if a school is, is meeting your needs, then you send your kid to that school and the dollars follow the student. And if they're not, then you can move them and you don't have to go through this long, onerous regulatory process managed by the government that has every incentive to keep you trapped where you're at. And when it comes to higher ed, stop telling people that that college degree is what's going to equal success. What's going to equal success is capability and your university is either providing it or it doesn't. But when we've got to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out people Mm -hmm. that went to your university, what that tells me is your university is not actually providing the, the value that you set. And so when, when the value, when the value of the education I received at your institution is not worth the loan that it took to pay for it, that's a problem. A big problem. And that's how we, I, I think that's we go on education. On our K through 12, it really is the focus on, on dollars following students. When it comes to higher ed, it's really reevaluating the way that states actually fund higher ed mm-hmm. and, and start to ask some hard questions about what is the government's role in funding higher ed and how is it actually being used and manipulated? I think, I think as, as a, an, an intermediate solution, like the first thing that we look at it as, if you want to get, if you want to get a, a tuition assistance grant from the government, that's taxpayer dollars. Well, the first question I have for you is, what are you majoring in? Yeah. And, and if whatever you're choosing to major in, at the, at the school you're choosing to major in, if that's not going to set you up for success, keep in mind here, I'm not just, I'm concerned about my constituents and their tax dollars, but I'm also concerned about you. Mm-hmm. And I don't want some institution of higher education convincing you that you can come here and study 16th century French literature and pay off the $40,000, $50,000, $60,000 it costs to go here. That's predatory. So I'm going to say, look, before you come and get that tag grant, we have some questions to ask because you're asking constituents for money. Those constituents might want you to be able to get a higher education, but they want to know you're going to be able to pay the loan because it's not just about the loan. It's about everything after that. Are you going to be able to actually buy a house? Are you going to be able to have a family? Are you going to be able to afford these things? And a good education in a field that's in demand will provide you the opportunity to do that, but we're not going to subsidize a college experience for the benefit of the university over the student. Tina, while you were talking just a minute ago, I had a thought in my head that if the government subsidies for education, higher education disappeared, 
I think overnight or within a matter of a semester, the amount of partying that go- <laughs> happens on college campuses would likely disappear as well. A significant <laughs> amount of it, because if every student went to college knowing that it was their dollars that they were spending at that time, do, do, does anybody think they may do a better job of oh, using that time? There's no question. I mean, that used to be how loans for college worked it is yeah. you would you would get a private loan and the bank or whatever the lending institution would have basically two questions for you. What were your grades in high school? Because they wanted to make sure that you you had set up the academic mm-hmm. um, you would set up the, the academic practices to make sure you'd be successful in college. And then what are you majoring in? Because they wanted to make sure you could pay back the loan. Yeah. But but the incentive that was created in that. Right. Because the left looks at that and says, oh, well, they're just greedy. They just care about the loan. No, the, the yeah, you're right. They do. That's what they want. But the incentive structure that is created in that sort of environment also creates a good structure for the student because now the student has to be adequately prepared before they go into this. There's a reason why we have an epidemic of students going to college, racking up debt, and then never graduating. It's because they weren't actually prepared because those hard questions weren't asked because it was more important for the politicians to just get money into their hands so they can come back later and say, we'll forgive the loan. In the education system, we are advocating for free market principles to dictate how everything runs. But there's another system within America, the healthcare system, yep. which a lot of these issues could be solved with free market practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Nick, moving on to our next topic of conversation, what should the conservative strategy be going forward on healthcare? I, I think where we are, fo- the end state we want is. We want it to be quality, we want it to be affordable, and we want it to be accessible. So w- what does that mean? That means that based when, when some, you need something from the healthcare system or from some mm-hmm. a healthcare provider, you can get it, it's going to be good, and you can afford it. Right? That's, that's what we mean by that. So how, what is the best way to achieve that? Well, what the left is saying is, well, the best way to achieve that is for the government to essentially either run the system or, or heavily regulate and manage the system. That's, that's their solution. So the obvious thing you need to point out is like, okay, so let's look at the other things that the government manages and runs. So the DMV, right? That's when you, do you feel like you've had a positive experience when you go to the DMV? Do you feel like it's been quality? Do you feel like it's been affordable? Do you feel like it's been accessible? Is, is that an experience you would want to replicate in other areas of your life? For instance, do you want the, would you want the DMV to run your grocery store? Right? Would you want the DMV to run you know, any other institution that you regularly interact with? Would you want that? And chances are they're going to say no. Okay, so let's diagnose the problem. The reason why there's a problem with the government running the healthcare system is because of the same negative incentives that we see in the government running everything else. You're basically left without choices whenever that happens. right? And there's not the same incentive structure for people to be able to perform and be responsive because you don't have another option. And so this idea that everyone's just going to function beautifully off of altruism, okay, but it doesn't seem to work that way. And and in reality, I want, if you really want to take care of not only patients, but doctors, nurses, medical professionals, you need to have an environment where you can have those transactions and people have choice and options. And so if we're properly diagnosed, why is healthcare currently not as affordable as we'd like, not as accessible as we'd like, and not as quality as we would like? And what they will tell you is it's the greed of the private sector. If you're greedy, the best way to get wealthy in medicine is to make it quality, affordable. No, it's to make it quality, affordable, and accessible, right? In every other area, what do we see, right? We we don't see people saying, oh, I only want to serve the richest 1%. 
That's not how you get fabulously wealthy if you're a truly greedy person. The way you actually get wealthy is by creating a good quality, affordable product to as many people as possible. But we don't allow that to happen within medicine because the government restricts the number of people that become doctors and nurses. They heavily restrict it. They make it very expensive. And, and they also work with elements within the private sector to do that. There's a huge cronious component here. And there's COPN. There's things like certificate of public need where the government will tell you, oh, somebody wants to come in and provide a service. You're not allowed to provide that service unless you can convince your competition that that service is needed. Can I point out, though, that like, I, is it me or did healthcare play almost zero role in this election? Like, I, I feel like the Democrats were focused on January 6th, abortion, threats to democracy, well, yeah, if you want to look at one election cycle, you can in, clearly say that this one wasn't In 2018 and in 2020, yeah. we know this for, from personal experience, in 2018 and in 2020, healthcare was like one of the top issues the Democrats ran well, on. Healthcare, but, healthcare fell into like COVID response and everything else as well. Like, I, I don't think, here, here's the deal. There's going to be years where healthcare is in the top three. There's going to be years where healthcare is maybe in the eighth top place, top eighth, yeah. right? But it's always going to be in the top 10. And so you better have a response to it because the more the more crises you face, the more problems that you face, the more elevation in prices you face in another area, the more there will be a demand to nationalize or centralize provision of healthcare because it's seen as essential and for good reason. But you better you better you better be able to combat that narrative because the, the Democrats like to respond with things like insulin prices are super high. Actually, they did run on that. So, yes. so that that is true. That that because I was thinking at first, and I'm like, why are we even bringing this up? Because I feel like the Democrats didn't focus on healthcare. And while that might actually be true, that's because I'm thinking of of a bigger picture. But when you actually dig down into the stuff the Democrats were talking about, like a lot of them were actually talking about, we capped the price of insulin. And by the way. Um, for the audience at home, price caps never work. No. Price caps will just lead to shortages. If you really want to make insulin less expensive, how about we remove some of the government regulations when it comes to the FDA's ability to restrict the number of people that are actually producing and supplying it? Yeah. But I, I, I do agree that there was no response from Republicans on that front at all because yeah. our issues that we focused on were inflation, immigration, and crime. Yeah. And I don't – outside of those fields, I really struggle to think about what Republicans were actually well, it, talking the, about. The, the point is, is we've had crappy message on this for years because it, it's just been the idea of the private sector. And we do not have a, a – we do not have a strong private sector healthcare industry. We don't. It's a heavily government-mandated, mm -hmm. regulated, controlled system. I mean, it, it is – yeah, we have private and, hospitals. And the point I want to make, too, is that if these hospitals and the people leading them are greedy individuals, yeah. they have taken advantage of the relationship with the government yes. using corporatism. A, a, a greedy person will choose cronyism over capitalism yeah. every day of the week because cronyism is the ability to use force to get something, whereas within a capitalist system or more specifically a free market system, you have to compete for it. it and cronyism is a guaranteed payout. Yeah, greedy people don't want to compete. Right. Greedy people want to dominate and control. The government allows them to do that. And that's part of the argument that we need to make. If you if you think greed is the problem, then cronyism is your greatest threat. Right? It, it, it isn't open competition on the marketplace. Yeah. So if you want quality, how do you get it? You need more competition. Okay, great. If you want affordability, how do you get it? You need more competition. If you want accessibility, how do you get it? You need more stuff. How do you get more stuff? Through competition. Right. It, this is it, it's. And, and again, people act. I, I actually saw a, um, a delegate say this. It was in reference to uh, education, but the same could be applied for healthcare. It's like, well, within competition, you have winners and losers. We don't want winners and losers in healthcare. 
No, you have competition between the service providers, yeah. not the customer and yeah. the service provider, the service providers. And so what happens within that competitive environment is the best service providers go to the top serving more customers. So the customers right. benefit from the competition. Now, in a system where you have monopoly, and this is the way we should word it, do you want monopoly in healthcare or do you want greater choice in healthcare? Oh, I don't want monopoly. That's what a government system is. It's monopoly. I got a quick question, Nick. Do you think there's any difference in how the left sees individuals in relation to people being good naturally? Is there a difference in how we view people on the left and right? I, I don't. But, I don't. Because here, here's what I, the point I want to make on that. Um, I, I think generally on the right and as believers and Christians, we, we generally want to think that people are good. Those people at the top of the healthcare, you know, hospitals. But we also understand that there is no guarantee that they will always act within the best interest of the people they are serving. And our solution is not to let them, our solution is to force them uh, to compete to bring the customer the best service. Mm -hmm. And their intentions as to whether they, they are good or not do not matter because they are all competing for the customer. It's impossible to judge every single individual, and it's even more difficult to judge their motivation. The real question is, what incentive structure is most likely to create positive right. outcomes? And the incentive structure where competition and transparency, and that creates positive outcomes. And the incentive structure that's created through monopoly is all about how do I use force to control it? How do I use force to control other mm -hmm. people? And then I can convince myself all day long that, oh, well, I'm doing this for good reasons. Yeah. Nick, it's definitely been a topic of conversation that illegal immigrants have put a weight on our healthcare system. Uh, so keeping that in mind, what should our messaging be on immigration moving forward? Well, I think there's there tends to be kind of like three general motivations on the immigration question. So like a lot of people on the left seem to want to argue for these open borders until, of course, Ron DeSantis drops off a load at, you know, uh, a, a load of people at, at Martha's Vineyard, and then all of a sudden they're 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 rethinking that. Um, libertarians argue for open borders, or they argue for or better immigration because they think the free flow of goods and people is is a is a net positive. Um, and then on the on the conservative side, there's kind of this this question of border security and national sovereignty. And, and I'll tell you where where I land on this one is that I I think the left is completely disingenuous about immigration. I think they're completely disingenuous about it. I I think they see. When, when people are coming over the border um, in an illegal fashion and they're coming over in such a way to where they're probably going to be heavily dependent upon um, you know, government assistance, they see that as future voting blocks. I, I think that is their motivation at this point. Now, they probably think, well, what we're really doing is we're providing someone that needs help, help, and they happen to vote for us because we're the ones that support the help, right? That's how they probably morally justify it. But at the end of the day, I think they're creating dependent populations. Um, the, the, the issue that I have with the libertarian argument on this one, or, or some libertarian argument on this one, is this whole idea that, well, you can just have open borders and a massive welfare state. No, you can't. You can't. The math does not add up. And, and to your point, uh, I, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, but you know, immigration is a net positive. I, it said it, it certainly can be. Like I'm, I'm not anti-immigration. I think immigration is can be an incredibly positive thing for, for economic issues, for social issues, for everything. It can be great. The real question, though, is that when you have a massive welfare state and, and you, don't, you don't regulate it well, as we've seen, because the government was handing out you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to people in prison and to people that weren't supposed to get it, I think it actually got into the billions. The real question is, is that, okay, well, then what happens when you have an influx of people that are now being encouraged 
to use elements of the system. Now, part of the response to that will be is, well, they're not. They're still paying taxes. Okay, are they paying property taxes? Yeah, because it's hard to get away from property taxes. Are they paying sales taxes? Yeah, because it's hard to get away from sales taxes. Are they paying income taxes? No, right? They're not paying a lot of the income taxes. Not only that, but when they use the school system, because the school system is not questioning the immigration status of people that come into it, right? When they go into the hospital, right? Those And, and then they can't pay those fees or they can't pay the bills associated with those things. That creates additional burden on the social structure. So the whole idea with immigration, for me, this, this, I don't understand why this is so controversial. You can do one of two things. You can either drastically decrease the, over, the social welfare system that you have, in which case people come into the country, that doesn't necessarily represent, uh, uh, that doesn't represent the same kind of burden on the system because it's like it was early on in the country's history where there, there, was, no, there was no government welfare system that was propping people up. You came to the United States because you wanted to work right. and you wanted opportunity. Um, the other thing that you have to do with border security is you got to recognize that there's some people that want to come to the country to hurt us, right? And so there has to be a process and, and you focus on those areas where, where are people most likely to come into the country in order to hurt us? And then you fortify that or you, you harden that and you create, you create a manageable border so that people can actually effectively patrol it. Well, as you know, though, like Joe Biden's not doing that. In fact, he's literally doing the exact opposite. I, I remember it was, uh, what, like a few weeks ago that... Biden sued Arizona yeah. to demand that they dismantle a makeshift portion of a border wall that the yeah. state of Arizona had set up, like literally suing a state to yeah. tear down border to open up a gap in the wall to, to open up a gap in the wall. And yeah. when you looked at the Senate race in Arizona between Blake Masters and Mark Kelly, in one of the debates that they had, Mark Kelly was on the defensive on yeah. immigration and was like criticizing mildly, but he was criticizing Biden's administration being like, you know, they've done things, you know, very, you know, very haphazardly or, you know, I disagree with him on this or that. He was yeah. like trying to offer some really mild criticisms, which was shocking for a Democrat to do. And that was really a sign. I, I, a lot of people took that as a sign, myself included. That, oh, this race is actually a lot tighter than the polls were suggesting. That combined with, as I pointed out a few days before the election, that Kelly was consistently pulling under 50%, yeah. led a lot of people, including the betting markets, to think that there was going to be an upset there. And yet Blake Masters lost. Yeah. And he lost by a bigger margin than Carrie Lake did. So it's not like, you know, we we can say that that that, you know, oh, well, it, it was just because Republicans across the board lost in Arizona. Fair enough. First off, that's not even true because down ballot Republicans did win several races yeah. in Arizona. And more importantly, he lost by a bigger margin than Kerry Lake did. So how do we explain that? That like it looked from my point of view, and I'll end I'll end the question with this. From my point of view, it looks like that Republicans had actually won the immigration argument this cycle. Yeah. And that I think that's largely true. And so if you you say that that's largely true. Yeah. So so is there really still room for improvement for us? Because yeah, I, 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 I feel do. like that was an issue that we no, actually I, did I, well on. I do because it, 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 there was other issues that I I think there was other issues that were more prominent. But there was a couple of things that changed this election cycle. One, you know, DeSantis originally criticized Abbott and Ducey for shipping buses of immigrants to Washington D.C., New York City, and Chicago. And then he did the one to Martha's Vineyard. And I think what, what was recognized there was because originally DeSantis is like, why are we, 
Why are we taking people deeper in the United States? It was like, because the same people that are advocating these policies don't have to live with the consequences of the policies and they have to feel that before they can actually understand what's going on. And I think a lot of people looked at that and it brought such attention to the issue that the same Democrats that five seconds ago were saying, we're a sanctuary city, we welcome all, were then calling for National Guard assistance when a fraction of the people that descend on a 50,000 population border town descended on their city of 7 million, right? They couldn't handle it, but you expect a 50,000 person border town to be able to handle it. I think they lost the argument as soon as they were confronted with the consequences of their own actions and policies. I think the other thing too, that Republicans need to do a much better job on. This is how I would message this. We are, we are pro immigrant. We are not pro chaos. And that's what's going on at the border right now. This has nothing to do. I'm sorry. You don't get to tell me with the amount of fentanyl that's coming across the border, with the amount of human trafficking that has jumped up, with the amount of human trafficking for underage like minors, you don't get to tell me that that's a good, compassionate policy at the border. And all you have to do is go down and actually talk to people that live directly on the border to say, yeah, this is, this is chaos. This, they don't have a policy. They are encouraging chaos because it's beneficial to them. And the moment that we point to the chaos, they say, oh, you must be a racist. So I, I that think that argument is starting to fall apart, though, it, because it, you're it's looking falling at the real apart on multiple and, things. And yeah. you're looking at like parts of the country where there's, you know, heavy Hispanic population. That is it continues to shift to the right. It's not going to the right like at lightning speed, but. Democrats are starting. The wheels are falling off the bus for the Democrats to use race baiting as a means. What? What? But I think it's. I, I think they are shifting to the right. What? What is shocker? Of, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think they are shifting to the right partially because of the transgender policy on the left right now, um, because it's not popular amongst these communities. Um, well, I, I. I mean, what? What a shocker! It turns out, first and second generation immigrants don't like it when their kids die as a result of fentanyl overdose. And they don't like it when their kids are intimidated, you know, by cartels and they don't like human trafficking. And then when we get into the whole social issue component, there, there's a value system there where it's, it's strong on family and, and they don't like the idea of, wait a second, I'm coming to the United States and now you're, now you're putting pornography in my kid's middle school. Speaking of that, can I actually call an audible here? And I, I really want to, because we're near, we're getting close to the end of the, the points of, of what conservatives should talk about and what they should have talked about in this election cycle, but, but not just in this election cycle going forward. I kind of want to call an audible and bring that up. The, the, whole the social, social issues yeah. in general. And this is somewhat interrelated with education policy, as we talked about earlier, yeah. but we didn't really get into the weeds of this. We were talking more about the fiscal side yeah. and the college side. I want to talk about the elementary, middle school, and high school side of things in the, in the traditional public school system because there is a lot of passion on both sides on this issue. But I think that Republicans, for the first time in a long time, actually kind of have a bit of an edge on the education side. And so related to the the social issues, and it's not just the social issues too, because I also want to give you the opportunity to talk about abortion briefly, because I know a lot of people who are going out there saying, see, the real reason that Republicans lost yeah. was because of Dobbs. Yeah. And first off, I just want to say, if you're upset that Oz lost in Pennsylvania because of Dobbs, I'm sorry, I will trade 10,000 Oz's for Dobbs any day of the week. And more importantly, for any election cycle for this to take place in, I'm glad it took place in this cycle yeah. rather than a presidential cycle. Because even if Dobbs had a negative political impact, first off, it was totally worth it. Yeah. Totally worth it. Second off, 
it took place in, in an environment where the headwinds were in our favor, and it's unfortunate that they didn't play out more in our favor. But I was telling Hamilton this a few days ago that, like, two years from now, four years from now, six years from now, the Democrats are going to be able to use this as a weapon against us less and less and less as people become accustomed to the fact that, you know what, we now live in a post-Roe society, and it's not coming back anytime soon as long as conservatives hold the court, and they will for quite some time, hopefully. And I I really do think that that's been a complete game changer. I I, I think that you're going to see more fights at the state level over abortion policy now, but I'm I'm thrilled that this has happened, and I disagree vehemently with the idea that that it wasn't worth it, right? You know that oh well, we could have picked up some more house seats, or we might have been. Yeah, been those able are to- the same people that always call it a social issue. Abortion's a social issue. Well, so I, so I I wanted to so if we look just at, give you an idea to talk let's about. Let's look at two categories here because we we are we are and we got we got three more things we had this and then two more things to cover. So here, here's what I'll say on on uh, abortion and then on some of the other issues that you that you brought up on you know, kind of like the transgender side and whatnot. I, I think with abortion, I, I just, I agree with your sentiment. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. We, we can, we can look at the numbers right now in places like Texas or Alabama where they've, cause again, Dobbs did nothing to affect abortion across the country, except for those States that already had state legislation that immediately went into play um, in the event that, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And, and what do we find? Well, we find based off of birth rates and whatnot, we find that there's, there's, there's probably already been tens of thousands of children that were born that otherwise would not have been. And so if you want to tell me that, yeah, it would have been better if they died. Yeah. You're sick. I'm not buying that. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I, I will say this. I, I think you're absolutely right about how this goes over the, over the future. Here's the other thing I want. And I want this real bad. If I'm, if I'm being honest and I don't even know if it's a proper motivation, it's just something that makes me mad as technology improves. And as I hope that we're going to be moving more and more into a situation where children are going to be able to be, you know, saved outside of the womb, where the ultrasounds that we do become so much more vivid. Um, I want my great grandchildren to know that their, their great grandfather stood exactly where he needed to on this issue as a piece of moral conscience stood exactly where he needed to on this issue. That, that this was not something that we were going to look at as just another political, a political policy position among many others. This was the whole debate on the sanctity of human life. And so on, on this one, I think Dobbs was absolutely the right decision. I completely agree that, that, you know, again, if it cost us some political races, so be it because it saved tens of thousands of children. And, and I'm sorry, I, I will, I will, I'll take that. Um, the other thing that I will say on, on the things like the transgender policy and things what's going on within schools, I think these things are connected. And we've had larger episodes where we've actually talked about kind of the, the worldview that leads to these sorts of ideas. But I think more and more parents are becoming very, very concerned about the over-sexualization of their children. Like it was already bad enough with the things that were going on on social media. It was already bad enough with the things that we were seeing in like television programming on Netflix and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden, but that they could at least point to that and like that's outside. I'm not necessarily paying for that. It's a private corporation. Right, yeah. <laughs> then all of a sudden it was like, wait a second. They're, it's in your school. This is in my school? Like, So let me get this straight. The NAEP scores come out and like Virginia is ranking at the bottom with respect to the, the loss, learning loss that has taken place. But you're spending time focusing on this? You're trying to tell me my kid has problems reading and they're two grades below on their math scores, but you've got to dedicate quality time 
to talk about queer theory to my child. And drag queen story Yeah, hour. it's like, well, we're not doing that. Yeah, you are, because I can walk into the hallways and I can see the stuff that you're doing. You are trying to influence my child in a particular direction. If you, you know what, focus on... We, We'll have this discussion once my kids' reading scores are up to their grade level. Or it's getting, you, it's getting harder and harder to gaslight people on this too yes, because everything's yes. on video now. Yep. And and as you have pointed out repeatedly, Nick, like, you know what would really solve this problem would be real school choice legislation. Yep. That's right. Uh, again, the, the, the argument here that is taking place, and this is all about how we talk about it, the, the, a lot of people on the right are saying, we don't agree with you. We want to take our child elsewhere, and we would like the dollars allocated allocated for our child's education to go with them. And by the way, that's, wait a second, that's our argument. What's their argument? No, <laughs> you have to put your kid in the same school I'm putting my kid, and your dollars can't leave. I'm sorry. Who's the authoritarian here? Who who's the one that's being anti-democratic and, with and respect to how I get to determine the curriculum? Yeah. You don't. Yeah. You have no choice, no freedom, and I get to choose everything. Because I'm an expert, and right? I'm an Eric Swalwell. So right. like I, I I've got to point out that like Lee Zeldin actually talked about this a lot in his campaign for governor in New York, is on the school choice side. And we actually did a Y minute about this yeah. not too long ago about the problems with the public school system, especially in New York City itself. Um, so go watch that if you're interested. But I, that's actually another area that I think that if you're if we're looking for some bright spots from this election cycle where Republicans actually got it right in yeah. terms of their messaging, I, I think that we're getting to a point. Yeah. It's not perfect yet, but I think we're getting to a point where our messaging on the school front and we're well, talking I'm, now at the low level. What, what level really was, I mean, in this whole category was too talking about the generalized social policy, right? And that affects things like education. It affects things like in other industries. But what we've seen is that the right is basically taking a position where live your life the way you want, but I don't need to necessarily be included in that. And the left has taken the position that, oh, we will live our life the way we want, and you're going to celebrate it. And if you don't celebrate it, we're going to come after you. And oh, by the way, we're going to educate your kids on it. And if you don't like it too bad, we'll call you a bigot. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but the long-term ramifications of that strategy, I don't think that plays out for them in, in, in most cases. I think most parents are waking up to the fact that it's like, no, 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 you don't get to call me intolerant because I don't want you talking about intimate sexual things with my third grader, right? That is unreasonable. Well, what... What I'm hoping parents will understand is that this level, they don't think it's unreasonable. And, and you need to start to really question the mindset and the thought process of someone that doesn't think it's unreasonable for them to have intimate sexual conversations with other people's children without you knowing about it. I'm sorry, I'm not being unreasonable when I say I question the motivation behind something like that. I, I completely agree. And I, um, I mean, speaking of that issue in general, I think that, that the, the solution is actually intertwined with, uh, the last issue that I think we're going to want to talk about, which is the government reform side of things. All right, Nick, speed round. Yeah. Two last topics. I want to get to the end so we can wrap this all up in a nice package. Okay. Government reform. Okay, I, I think that a lot of times when we talk about government reform, politicians always want to talk about things like campaign finance reform. Here's what you need to understand. They talk about that because they're trying to give themselves an advantage as an incumbent. So just understand, it might sound good, but they don't have good intentions when they're usually talking about it. The real government reform that they don't want, which means you do, mm -hmm. is the reform that limits kind of what, what's going on right now. So for instance, one of the things that really infuriates people is that politicians will pass this, like, we want the save the puppies bill. And then the Saving Puppies Bill gets signed into law. And then the executive branch, right, the governor or the president, depending on what level it's at, they say, okay, executive branch agency, 
make laws. Well, I'm sorry, make regulations. But those regulations all carry the force of law. Well, none of your representatives actually voted on those individual regulations. None of them. So if you want to know why we have like 77,000 pages of like federal tax code and regulations, a lot of it is because your legislators have said, we like the idea of saving the puppies. We do not like the idea of all the regulations that are actually going to come in order to save the puppies. And so we want to take it. We want to take credit for the goodness. Sure. And we want to say it's somebody else's fault for the badness. And then we can just address that later. So th there's a thing called the RAINS Act. I've talked about this before. Yep. Rand Paul had it over in at the federal level. I tried to carry a vari variation of this on the, on the state level. And all it said, real simple like, right, was when a, when a legislature is passing a bill that is going to grant all kinds of regulatory authority to an executive branch agency, the process now, the process right now is we pass the bill, go do stuff. And then if there's problems, we come back and we try to fix it. The process going forward would be, we're going to pass this bill and it's not going to go into effect for a full year. And in that year, the regulatory agencies have to come back and say, okay, this is what we would pass. This is what we would do in order to enforce this. And now there's a discussion between the legislators and the, and the regulators. And then we get a second look at that bill with the understanding of how it's going to be. But, and then it gives us as a chance to put in like limits before it goes into effect. All right. Right. So it's real simple. And, and this is one of those ways that you actually kind of combat this, this massive government overreach and this massive expansion of government power is just by forcing your representatives to actually vote on the stuff instead of just delegating their responsibilities to an executive branch agency. Last point, foreign policy. Real simple. I, I think we need to have like the strongest, well-equipped, most formidable military in the world. And I don't think it should be close, right? There's a lot of people yeah. that, now that doesn't mean there isn't waste within the defense budget. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be a lot of reforms. I don't get as upset about the defense budget. I get more upset about how the money is spent within the defense budget. But I think we also need to understand this. We are not the world's police force. Right now, if, if you want to actually play a proactive role, we, we all understand that, yes, it probably would have been a whole lot better for the French and the British to intervene with what Hitler was doing in the Sudetenland, right, in the 30s. Yeah. Like, we all get that. But not every situation is that. Sure. Not every situation requires the mass mobilization of a world power to go over and fight a war, right? Sometimes it can be a lot more of a, a simpler approach, a lot more surgical approach. And so what, what I would do is I would say, look, we need to do a much better job of understanding our foreign threats. I think the biggest one right now is China by far. I don't mm -hmm. think it's even close. And then we start to look at what their strategy is. Their strategy is asymmetric. They're not trying to beat us on the field of battle. They don't want a Chinese division going up against a U.S. division. They don't want a Chinese carrier battle group going up against a U.S. carrier battle group. They lose every time. So they focus on cyber. They focus on hypersonic weaponry. They focus on other. We need to develop strategy to be able to effectively combat that. You can't do that if you're fighting 20-year wars in Afghanistan, right, dropping, you know, trillions of dollars into it only to leave with the Taliban in charge. So we need to be a lot more strategic. And one of the biggest things that we need to do with foreign policy, and I'll leave with this, we don't go to war unless Congress declares it. Yep. Right? If there's one thing I could change about our current foreign policy that would be truly substantive, and I think a lot of people would be in favor of us, we don't go to war unless Congress votes for it. If you think it's so important to send other people's sons and daughters to go fight it, then you should have the courage to actually yeah. stand up and put your name on the board and vote. Quick question. Uh, going back to the beginning of the episode, what was the bill that you introduced related to election integrity, and how did that turn out? So we, we had a couple. So there were several of us that that – had election integrity bills. Some had to do with saying, look, you know, a, a month and a half before election day is that's 
that doesn't make sense because now you have people voting early on and then things can change or circumstances can change and now they can't change their vote. Right. At least the most. So one of it was saying, hey, how about two weeks? Two weeks is a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. It doesn't put a lot of additional burden on our registrars. Um, other people had bills that said, hey, we need to bring back photo ID. Right. We, it, it is not an unreasonable to say. Is that required in Virginia? No. Really? You do not need photo so, ID anymore. That's one of the things Democrats got rid of. Now, could a polling uh, precinct choose to require ID? No, that is a state really? law. They, now, you still got to show some form of ID. It doesn't have to be photo ID, uh, okay, right? Okay. The other thing that they have to do, uh, the other thing that we want to get, same-day voter registration. This is the first year it went into effect in Virginia. It, it is it is ripe for voter fraud. Let me give you a perfect example of this. You're a college student. You live in you know California, but you go to school in Virginia. Yep. You turn in your absentee for California, and then you go and same-day register because, oh, my gosh, you don't want that person to win or that person to lose. So you go same-day register, and you vote there. Now, is that illegal? Yes, it is. But is it easy to find out? No, it is not. Wow. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that the registrars are going to cooperate with one another in both Virginia and California. Did, it, did any of those bills pass? None of the ones I just mentioned did. The only thing that we got passed, and this is why we, we got – I think we got some variation of it um, – we were trying to fight for one of the biggest problems that we had in the, in the 2020 election cycle is in Virginia. We expanded early voting to 45 days. We did drop off boxes. We did all those things I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So half the electorate voted early. Now we know what precinct this cycle, the 2020, okay. half the electorate voted early and we knew which precinct that that represented. But instead, we took every single one of those early votes and we put it into the absentee precinct. Wow. The absentee precinct is usually counted last. So here's what the average person watching the election saw on election day. They saw 99% of precincts reporting. And this candidate's up by 20 points. Here's the problem. Th that was not a lie. 99%. Of the precincts were reported, but those a were all precincts. Those were all, but if the last precinct is the absentee precinct mm. and you put half of the electorate's votes in that one precinct, well, then in reality, 99% of the precincts were, were in, but only 50% of the votes were. Wow. Okay. Why did none of your bills or bills related to the one you introduced pass? They all died in a Democrat controlled Senate. The only uh -huh. one that the only one that we started to get was a little bit more reform along the one I just mentioned, which yeah. it ended up being we had like three of us carrying the same bill. It all got rolled up into Kathy Byron's bill. And so all we were trying to do is saying, hey, look, it doesn't make any sense to count these yeah. as absentee. They're early votes. They might have voted at the registrar's office, but what we should do is say, okay, you vote in the registrar's office, you're from this precinct, that's how that vote will be counted. And then on election day, th that should be, like, we should count those right away. Sure. We shouldn't be waiting to the end of the day. Right. And so we, we got some we got some reform on that, which is, I think, why Virginia came in a lot faster this year. Um, but most of the real substantive ones that we got yeah. failed in the Democratic All right, Christian, Senate. you got anything to wrap us up here, sir? Um, I do think that at some point it should, you know, I... I, I I would like us to have a conversation. I'm sure the audience would agree on um, like some of the broader, because we talked about the messaging side and I think that's really important because yeah, no. a lot of people didn't. A lot of people are going to be talking about the platitudes of, oh, this is Trump's fault or this is this is McConnell's fault or, or, establishment, or, or the establishment or voter whatever. fraud or, or any of these things. So at some point, I do think that it would be worth actually diving into that as a topic and talking more about, you know, to what degree did these things, you know, contribute to the loss or not contribute to the loss? And, and I want to encourage everyone to tune into Christian's podcast where he will, <laughs> Christian will be. <laughs> well, look, look, we got to go. There's one other thing I want to mention. I, I understand it is, it is a really complex, it, it, 
it's complex and it's something that's going to actually take, I think, a couple months to really go over, yeah. analyze, and, and to provide proper analysis instead of the knee-jerk stuff that everyone else is doing. Uh, but it is it is important because if we don't properly understand it, we're going to continue to have these problems. So I'm, I'm, I apologize. I teased you. <laughs> no, it's fine. All right. So listen, he's like, it's fine. I'm going to go slash your tires. It's cool. All right. So... One thing I want to bring up, we've got a really special announcement and a new introduction to make huge coming up this Thursday. Also, we put out to our listeners and our viewers on Volley Chat, what are some of the questions? What are some of the issues that they would like to be prepared to talk about during this holiday season when you've got that crazy uncle coming to visit, when you've got that kid home freshly from college? For me, for me, at Thanksgiving lunch and dinner, it will be the election integrity conversation. There we go. So, so I learned a lot today, but there will be more to learn. There will be more. So, And when does that episode publish? That episode is going to publish actually on Tuesday, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Right. And here's why we're doing it this way. You're going to have an opportunity to like put this thing up. Yeah. And as you're preparing for Thanksgiving, as you're getting the house clean, maybe as you're cooking, as you're preparing stuff, yeah. you can throw this thing up and we're going to cover the top issues that our viewers wanted to be ready to discuss. Yep, yep. And, and by the way, I want to make this very clear. We're going to talk about how to discuss them in a family environment. Yep. With not people make that anybody you, mad. With people that you presumably would like to maintain a good relationship yeah. I would also like to say, if you feel better prepared with a story to tell at the Thanksgiving table, Christian brought an incredible idea to us the other day for a Why Minute episode that we'll be releasing on the 23rd of this month, the day before Thanksgiving. But also, in addition to record, uh, publishing a Why Minute about it, we were also discussing it on a special episode that we're publishing on Wednesday, the 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving. And so if you would like an interesting story to tell at the table, I know I would. You can join us that Wednesday, maybe you're traveling in the car. We'll be discussing an interesting story about Jamestown that I think will leave you prepared to have an interesting story to tell. So, Nick, I'm going to hand it back to you to close us out here. All right, look, I think that's it. I think we wrapped it all up. Thank you for sticking with us. It, no, was, it was a long episode. It was a long episode, but we wanted to get through these issues and talk about the proper way to talk. So, again, diagnose the problems, talk about incentive structures, and then find stories and examples that are actually relevant to people. That's what we tried to Boom. do today. We'll do some more of that later. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.